0: Coming now to our sermon text, we are still working our way through the passion of Christ as Matthew relates it to us in his gospel. And we are in Matthew 26, verse 69, continuing on to the chapter 27 and verse 10. And we read these words. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And when the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned... He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. And the chief priest taking... The pieces of silver said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver and the price of... uh, on whom a piece had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. And so ends the reading of God's Word. If we were to put ourselves in any of the disciples' shoes during Jesus' passion, I'm confident that all of us would rather be Peter, even though he fails Christ, than Judas. After all, despite all of Peter's bungling and boasting his failures and misunderstandings, he still seemed pretty committed to Christ. We saw last week that he was willing to take his sword and charge a mob to try to prevent Jesus from being arrested. But Judas, Judas was Jesus's betrayer. For 30 pieces of silver, for just a a few months' wages, he was willing to hand Christ over to his enemies, and then he used a sign of affection and friendship to commit that heinous sin. However, our text that we just read in Matthew places the narratives of both of these men side by side during the trial and conviction of Christ. And by doing that, we learn that Peter and Judas are more alike than they are different. I mean, both men were disciples of Jesus. They both traveled throughout Galilee and Judea with Jesus for three years during His ministry on this earth as He preached the gospel of the kingdom, bringing healing and hope to the hearts of many. Together, they would have heard Jesus teach the very same things. They would have sat on that mountain when He proclaimed that sermon on the mount and hear Him say, bless. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They both witnessed the power of God through Christ in His miracles. They saw the blind given sight, the deaf made to hear, the lame to stand from their beds and walk. They both witnessed Jesus' power over Satan and his demons, giving freedom to those who had been long enslaved by evil. They both even saw his power over death itself as he was able to give life to the dead. In the pitch black of nights, they sat together in a small boat in the middle of a lake with fear in their hearts as a violent storm is pummeling that little boat with wind and waves, and they both were rescued by the sovereign power of Christ over nature as He calmed that storm with just His voice. And as is revealed in our text this morning, they both committed horrible, grievous sins against Jesus. When you compare Peter's denial... With Judas's betrayal, there really is little difference between them. And consider Peter's sin. You could almost say that denial is a betrayal of sorts. I mean, Peter had pledged his commitment, his faith to Christ, expressing his willingness to die for Him if need be. And in a short space of time, he completely abandons Jesus and walks back on His promise. When we already see him starting to move away from Jesus as he does not enter the place of trial, but we find him sitting in the courtyard just outside. He doesn't want to be noticed, so he sits down and makes him less conspicuous. Despite that, however, as we see, he is noticed by one little servant girl. She recognizes him as being a disciple of Jesus and so she says you too were also with the galileans and peter's growing uncomfortable by by her questioning and reasoning and so he denies it before her and in the presence of those who are around her in that courtyard this is not a secret denial or a silent denial it is very public jesus is or P- peter is disassociating himself with jesus as we read, he denied it before them all in verse seventy. Then he said, I don't know what you mean. That first denial is not quite as forceful as the next two that are coming. It's subtle. He's trying to weasel his way out from being identified as belonging with Christ. He's saying, I don't know what you're talking about. It's almost like he's saying, "That's silly. What? What on earth do you mean? I I have no idea. Who's this Jesus?" It's a feigned confusion. We read in verse seventy-one. Because of the pressure, he he then flees to the gate of the courtyard. He's he's trying to escape the crowd. He does not want to be identified with Christ. He is moving further and further away from Jesus and his physical move away is coupled with a spiritual one another servant girl sees him and she says aloud looking to the bystanders for confirmation this man was with Jesus of Nazareth wasn't he and the hostility of the atmosphere is beginning to escalate Peter is feeling the heat. Nazareth, being identified with it in the way she said it, was a derogatory term. To come from Galilee was one thing. I mean, you're not from Judea. You're you're one of those people from the north. But to be from Nazareth was another. It is this small, uncultured, uncivilized town. It's like calling someone a redneck. He's accusing Peter of being associated with Jesus thus implying that he too was a follower of that madman from the north. Peter pushes back with an even stronger denial. In verse 72 again he denied it and we are told this time with an oath. I do not know the man. It was customary to to make oaths, to swear by the temple or to swear by God himself. But Jesus expressly told His disciples, don't do that. Let your no be no and your yes, yes. Matthew 5.34-37, He says, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make your hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And so here you have Peter now, not only denying his association with Jesus, but openly denying his teaching as well. By denying it with an oath, he is effectively saying, May the judgment of God fall upon me if what I am saying is not true. Notice he also calls Jesus the man. Before, earlier, he was willing to acknowledge Him as the Christ. And it is upon that profession of Jesus as the Christ that Jesus will build His church. But here, he simply calls Him the man, any other person. Peter's oath-filled outburst, though, doesn't work. In fact, it does the opposite of what he was hoping. He's really drawn a crowd now. With that second denial, he's he's made things worse. And so one of the bystanders agrees with the servant girl and says, certainly you too are one of them. And I love this. For your accent betrays you. I can tell where you're from. You're from the north. You're from Galilee. They're really pressing in. You see, Galileans were... Again, the object of jest, because of the way they would pronounce certain Aramaic consonants, it's like saying pecan" or pecan" or pecan," or however you want to say it. It's actually the real word is pecan. Um, but it's an inside joke, <laughs> but pecan. But they could tell that Peter was from the north because of the way he pronounced words. And Jesus spoke the same way. He used the same Aramaic consonants. It made sense then that this Peter must be associated with them. After all, he was by the door of the place of trial in the courtyard kind of trying to listen what was going on. He speaks with the same accent. He must be one of them. But he denies Jesus a third time. And this denial is the strongest of the three. He began to invoke, we read in verse 74, he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know the man. He fills his denial with profanity in a self-imprecatory statement calling upon the very wrath of God, a divine curse to fall upon him if what he says is untrue. May God condemn me if I am lying, is what he is saying. And as soon as that last syllable of his denial comes from his mouth, that curse, that condemnation, does fall from heaven in the sound of a crowing rooster. Peter had publicly denied any affiliation with Jesus. Jesus. And to deny Jesus is a sin worthy of death. Jesus told us this way back in Matthew 10.33 where He said, Whoever denies Me before men, I also will deny before My Father who is in Heaven. To be a follower of Jesus isn't always a safe thing to do. It certainly wasn't for Peter in that moment. And when the hostility of the crowd threatened against Him, the temptation then was to move further away. There are two things we can do when, when culture and society turns against Jesus and the Gospel. We can suffer the hostility as Jesus did, or we can deny Christ and escape the suffering like Peter. But now let's look at Judas's sin The final chapter in his story of betrayal. And as chapter 27 of Matthew opens, we see Christ has now been condemned to death. He went through his trial before the Sanhedrin and the high priests and the elders of the people. And they've now condemned him to death. And for that uh, conviction to be carried out, that execution, they would need formal Roman approval. And so they bind him and they take him to Pilate, the Roman governor. And Judas has witnessed this entire event. Somewhere in his heart, a seed of bitter sorrow gives way to deep regret. And so we read in verses 3 and 4, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. So he tries to return the money. Of course, the priests aren't very helpful. They don't want anything to do with it. After all, they had hired Judas because they wanted to remove themselves one step from Jesus' death. They didn't want that blood on their hands. Or so they thought that by paying Jesus, they could escape it. They felt it would protect their reputation. So Judas Judas then, when they will not take the money, great agony of heart, throws it upon the floor at their feet, and we read his tragic end as he goes out and he hangs himself. He is overcome with grief. He cannot see any way forward. Forgiveness seems impossible, and so he commits suicide. Judas regretted what he had done in betraying Jesus, and so he tried to absolve his own responsibility and make things right by simply returning the money as if it would erase the bloodstain of his sin. But the thing is with sin is that no matter how hard you might try to redeem yourself, its mark still remains on you. You can scrub at it and scrub at it and that blood stain of sin does not go away. In an ironic twist, the 30 pieces of silver are taken by the priests. They are not returned to the temple treasury because they want to try to keep it ceremonially pure. And so they buy a potter's field. And Matthew explains that this was in fulfillment of yet another biblical motif as he borrows some words from the prophet Zechariah and some themes from Jeremiah and ties them together to show how Judas's end here was predicted by Scripture. The potter's field would have been a place where potters dug up earth to make clay. It was not a field suitable for living in. And the chief priests, again, wanting to maintain that ritual purity, bought that land as a place to bury strangers, we read. In other words, it became a common grave, a place where the unmarked dead, the foreigners that would flock to Jerusalem for feasts and festivals, uh, when they would die, where they would be buried. So unclean money went to buy an unclean plot of land, where the nameless dead people would be buried. And that is the legacy of Judas's betrayal. As much as he tried to rid himself of his guilt by returning the money, by casting it away, even by killing himself, the unholy mark remained upon him. And so there you have two very grievous sins committed by two high-profile disciples. Now, if you know the Bible, you know that Peter was forgiven of his sin, which we will consider in a moment. He was forgiven for denying Jesus. He was restored. He became a leader in the early church. But Judas, his name is only associated with betrayal. His legacy was a graveyard for the unknown. I mean, consider that many people will name their children Peter today, but you really never find anybody named Judas unless they belong to a uh, a metal band. (laughs) Some of you knew what I was talking about. (laughs) But why is that? Why is it that Peter was forgiven and Judas was not. I mean, they, they both did horrible sins unto death. They both showed regret and no doubt confessed that. What was the difference then between repentance and mere regrets? Well, we learn that from this text. You see, it's easy to confuse true repentance that leads us to life and mere regret that results in death. Sometimes we think that regret is repentance. And repentance does involve sorrow over sin, but it is far more than just that. Sometimes we think of repentance of well just being authentic Now there's a buzzword, authenticity, being honest with myself, being open about my sin struggles, and thinking that, hey, that's that's my repentance. Well, Judas did that. He was certainly honest and open and authentic and expressed what he had done. We learn here that not only did Peter and Judas... Both commit similar sins, but we can see that they both had a similar response. In in, in verse 74, we're told that Peter wept bitterly. He was cut to his heart with deep sorrow over what he had done. And Judas also regretted his sin. Uh, as we read uh, in, in, in twenty seven, chapter 27 in the ESV, it says he changed his mind. Another way to translate that is to say he was seized with regret or sorrow. He was remorseful for what he had done. It wasn't entirely different from Peter's bitter weeping. So what is the difference then between true repentance and mere regret? I and mean, we need to get this right Because repentance coupled with faith is what leads us to eternal life in Christ. Mere regrets leads us to death like it did for Judas. Paul put it this way in his letter to the second Corinthians. He said, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So let's look then at this worldly grief or this mere regrets absent of true repentance so we can better understand what repentance or godly sorrow as Paul calls it, is. First is regret confesses sin to the wrong person. That's what Judas did. He confessed that he had sinned. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But to whom did he confess his sin? To God? No. To Christ? No. He confessed it to the chief priests and the elders, the very people he conspired to betray Jesus with. You see, sinners cannot absolve the sin of other sinners. It's impossible. That is why in biblical worship, When a pastor announces to you that your sins are forgiven, he is simply declaring that. He is not absolving it or taking it away. It is Jesus that absolves it and takes it away. Your pastor is simply announcing that good news that forgiveness is yours in Jesus. Secondly, regret tries to undo the wrong it has done. When we regret our sin, we try to fix it ourselves. Again, that is exactly what Judas did. He tried to redeem himself by returning the money. Somehow if he'd do that, the guilt that was eating at his heart would go away. Get rid of the evidence, get rid of the guilt. And then when that didn't work, he killed himself. Which of course still did not remove his guiltiness. Sin must be paid for with death, but it cannot be the death of another sinner. That will not erase the guilt and the sin. Bad debt can't pay off bad debt. It only leads to worse debts. Third, mere regret or worldly sorrow tries to remove oneself from the responsibility of the wrong one committed. Judas wanted to absolve himself of all responsibility. I had nothing to do with that by getting rid of the money. But you can't do that. Once you sin, you've sinned against God. The eyes of the Lord see everything. So regret then, it, it, it does confess sin, but it confesses it to the wrong person. It tries to redeem itself by undoing the wrong it has done, and in doing that it is trying to remove or resolve, uh, absolve itself of responsibility of having sinned in the first place. And all of that leads, as we see in the tragic story of Judas, to death. Worldly sorrow, no matter how authentic and genuine and open and honest, will only produce more sorrow. It will produce death. So what is godly sorrow then? What is that repentance, true repentance that produces life? I love how our... Shorter Catechism answers that question. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with a full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience." Biblical repentance is pure gospel. It is a saving grace. It is the apprehension, the grasping of the mercy that is ours in Christ Jesus. We need the sovereign and merciful grace of God to infiltrate our lives if we are to have this repentance or this godly sorrow that leads to life. And we get a picture of that in the person of Peter. Even in this story, this, this narrative of Peter's tragic downfall, we see the grace of the gospel at work. If you look back up to the end of chapter 26, and notice what we read in verse 75. Immediately after Peter has sinned, he heard the, the rooster crow. And we read these words. And Peter remembered. What did he remember? The saying... Of Jesus. That is the grace of the gospel at work in his heart. He is remembering Christ, specifically Christ's word. It was the word of Christ that brought conviction to his soul. He didn't simply feel bad that he had wronged a dear friend, he was struck down by the fact that he had sinned against the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, God in the flesh. It was the Word of Christ that pierced His soul. And so the very first thing we learn about this grace of repentance is that it happens, it is brought about by the Word of God. And that is why we read it in public worship. We need to have God's Word show us who we are so that we might truly confess and know His forgiveness. And when we hear that word, it does convict us. It shows us that we cannot escape our guilt like Judas tried to do. Secondly, when it comes to repentance, as the Spirit of God brings to remembrance the horror of what we have truly done with our sin through the Word of God, we learn to abhor or hate that sin that we have committed against God. It isn't just feeling bad that I hurt someone else. But it is understanding that I have violated the highest law ever. The law of heaven itself. The law of my holy God, my Father. That I have sinned against Jesus, my gentle Savior, and the Holy Spirit, my Comforter. I have grieved Him. In other words... True repentance, unlike mere regret, confesses sin to the right person. Regret seeks consolation by commiserating with other sinners, but repentance, godly sorrow, comes before God and is willing to acknowledge their brokenness and fallenness before God Almighty. Third, true repentance always results, unlike regret, In the absolute, the complete, the final forgiveness of sins. Meaning it does lead to new life. We know that Peter's denial, unlike Judas' betrayal, was not the end of his story. And usually we will turn to the Gospel of John to see how Jesus forgives him. Where before a charcoal fire, having a shore lunch of fish... Jesus questions Peter. Do you love me? Most of us are familiar with the story. He questions him three times. Corresponding with the three times. Jesus uh, Peter denied Jesus. And Peter responds. You know I love you. You know I love you. And he's getting very frustrated with this. Because he knows. That his love isn't what he believed it to be. And Jesus. In his grace says. Feed my sheep. That. Struggling love, that failure is forgiven. Go and feed my sheep. But Matthew actually reveals to us that Peter was forgiven as well, but he does it through subtle details. If we go to Matthew 28, this is after Jesus' resurrection, we find that it is not ten disciples, so ten disciples minus Peter and Judas that go with Jesus into Galilee, But it is 11. Peter was counted as a disciple of Jesus. And earlier in Matthew 28, as Jesus is speaking of his disciples, he says, he calls out and says that they are his brothers, including Peter in that statement. And also, if we go all the way back into Matthew 12 and verse 32, Jesus tells us that a word spoken against Him is completely forgivable. And so no wonder then, when you fast forward a little more into Peter's life in Acts chapter 2. This is after Jesus' resurrection. He has ascended. The Holy Spirit has come. The church is beginning to grow. Peter preaches a sermon on that day of Pentecost. And that sermon cuts to the heart of those who heard. And they ask Peter, what should we do? Because they're grieved by their sin, just as Peter was. And this is what he says to them. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness, the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. Peter preached to them repentance resulting in forgiveness because he knew that personally. So repentance then, it comes through the conviction of the Word of Christ. Repentance is a confession of sin to the right person who is God, who is Christ. And it results in the forgiveness that it is ours through Christ. So the one thing that ties all that together when it comes to repentance is what? It is Jesus. The real difference between mere regret and... And true repentance, the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, is Christ Jesus. You see, regret only turns from sin. It turns away from it. It understands it is horrible. It feels the guilt of it. But it never turns to Jesus. But repentance turns from the sin to the only one who can forgive it. it is Christ's. Thomas Watson, a 17th century pastor in England, wrote a little book called The Doctrine of Repentance. I commend it to you. If you can find it, read it. It's actually free online. It is full of the comfort of the gospel as it is tied to this doctrine of repentance, of what biblical repentance is. And he explains why in that book that we must not just turn from sin, but actually turn to Christ. And that if we were to only turn from the sin, that is not repentance. We need Christ. And he compares it to an arrow wound. He says turning from sin is like taking out an arrow, but turning to Christ is like pouring in balm. Or to modernize it, Turning from sin is like removing the bullet from a gunshot wound, but turning to Christ stops the bleeding. It treats the infection. It seals and closes the wounds. I mean, if you only remove the arrow or the bullets, you're still going to bleed to death. Infection will still set in. It will still kill you. But if you treat the wound in full, stop the bleeding, close it up, then the result is healing. The result is life. Repentance is turning from sin and turning to Christ. Jesus truly is the difference between mere regret and true repentance. And what that means for you is this, is that you can be 100% assured that all your sins, your big ones and your little ones, the ones you know about, you hide in the hollowness of your heart and the ones that others see, all your sins can be truly forgiven when you turn from them, grieve over them, and turn to Christ. And so you might be sitting here this morning with very dark secrets resting in those corners of your heart that nobody else knows about, but they are like a cancer. They are eating away at your life and your joy. And the guilt of it overwhelms you. You feel like you cannot escape it. You can, at this very moment, by turning to Christ, know that it is forgiven in this moment. All it takes is faith and repentance. Turning from that sin and turning to Jesus who took that guilt so that you can be declared righteous before God in Him. So confess it to Christ. Right now, confess to Him who will forgive. Let the Word of Christ convict your soul so that you might know the grace of restoration, the healing that comes through the blood of Him who washes away that stain of sin. You cannot absolve it yourself. You cannot find forgiveness in the consolation of other sinners, but you can find it in Christ. You cannot be authentic enough to cancel out the sorrow of your sin and the sting of guilt, but Jesus can do that right now if you will turn to Him. Well, perhaps you'd say, well, you don't know what I have done. Peter denied Jesus three times publicly. He asked God to condemn Him, cursing Him. But He was forgiven. And you will be too if you turn to Jesus. Again, Watson says it so eloquently. He says, Upon our turning to God, we have more restored to us in Christ than was lost in Adam. God says to the repenting soul, I will clothe you with righteousness. I will enrich you with the jewels of the Spirit. I will bestow my love to you i will give you a kingdom son or daughter all i have is yours that's the repentance of life that is what god gives you in christ so look to him let us pray father in heaven We are so thankful that You have not left us in the mire and the guilt and the sorrow and the despondency of our sin. That even as we feel these things and we mourn over them, we can turn from them knowing that is not who we are. But we can turn to Christ knowing that we are marked by Him who died for us and now lives so that we might have life in Him. I pray that You would press these truths upon our hearts, that this godly grace, this gospel of repentance would ring true in each and every one of us as we worship You. And as we go forth from this place and we no doubt will sin against You, we will remember that we have forgiveness in Jesus and we will turn again from our sin and turn fully unto Christ and find that peace that we need for our weary souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.